Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions about genitals and medical procedures. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, challenging the sex binary with a discussion of people who are intersex. Intersex isn't uncommon. It's just unheard of. That statement was from Esther Morris Lidoff, an intersex person featured in the documentary Intersection. It's true that most men and women don't know about the existence of intersex people. I bet many of you listening don't either. I come across this often in my teaching. Students are often blown away when I tell them about intersex people and wonder why this is the first time they're hearing about it. Intersex people are people whose biological makeup is not male or female. Their chromosomes, gonads, and genitals can be a mix of the two, or they can have genitals that are on a spectrum between penis and scrotum and clitoris and vulva. Everything in nature exists on a spectrum, so why wouldn't sex work that way too? Human brains love categories. Human brains love to put things in neat mental boxes. While this is a useful cognitive shortcut, it's also one reason why we develop stereotypes. It's also why we love binaries. Most people think that biological sex is a binary thing. Anti-trans people on the internet love to shout about biological sex as binary, claiming biologically a person can only be male or female. On this episode, I debunk the idea of biological sex as binary, introduce you to some ways people can be intersex, and talk about the challenges intersex people face. That's coming up on Do We Know Things? But first, I don't think I've ever mentioned it on this podcast, but I have another sex ed venture called Sex Ed East. The goal of Sex Ed East is to provide sex ed classes and consulting for people in Atlantic Canada, but it's available to anyone on the internet. You can find Sex Ed East on Facebook, on Instagram, where it's at Sex Ed East, and I write Sex Ed blog posts on the website at sexedeast.ca. I also work with two other incredible educators, Bonnie Fisher and Lindsay Sherwood. There's more about all of us on the Sex Ed East website. We also offer online sex ed classes for grown-ups. In March, I'll be running a series of classes for professionals who work with people in places where sex might come up such as therapists, social workers, and physicians. My job is to help people feel more comfortable talking about sex and to share knowledge about how to talk about sex in non-shaming ways, especially with people who are marginalized. Now let's talk about some biology. Before I launch into an exploration of the non-binary nature of biological sex, let's get a few things out of the way. First, the definition of binary in the Oxford English Dictionary is of, pertaining to, characterized by, or compounded of, two. So anything that has more than two cannot be described as binary. The existence of people whose sex is not male or female, by definition, means that sex is not binary. Sex and gender as concepts are themselves not even binary. It's common to define sex as biological and gender as social, but it's difficult to tease apart what is biological and what is social or psychological, especially when we're talking about behavior. 
To simplify things for this episode, which is focused on biological sex, I will just talk about bodies and not address behavior. I will talk a fair amount about hormones, but only their effects on bodies, because the interplay of hormones with biological and social influences is too intertwined. I also won't talk much about gender or gender identity. Gender identity is our internal sense of our gender, and gender roles are defined by behaviors and outward social presentation. Gender is obviously not binary. People of all sexes vary in the degree to which they express masculine and feminine traits. And what counts as masculine and feminine traits varies by culture. Even if we're thinking of gender in a category sense, most non-Christian cultures around the world have more than two genders, if not currently, then historically. I also want to clarify that I'm not talking about transgender people when I talk about intersex. While there may be some overlap in people who are trans and intersex, the focus of this episode is about bodies and biology, not gender identity. Okay, so we're talking about biological sex, but how do we even define that? In episode 27 of Do We Know Things, called The Biology of Sex, Dr. Anne Fausto-Sterling detailed the many components that go into creating someone's sex. These include sex chromosomes, genes that lead to the development of gonads, hormones that are released in utero, and body structures that result from a combination of hormones and genes. There are many developmental steps involved in going from a pair of XX chromosomes to an adult body that has ovaries, clitoris, uterus, etc. While the majority of people with XX chromosomes develop to be biologically female, and the majority of people with XY chromosomes develop to be biologically male, there's a lot of variability. And there's some debate in the research literature about what counts as intersex. Some researchers say it's only people with ambiguous genitalia. Some say it's only people whose chromosomes do not correspond with the sex of their genitals. But when I think of intersex, I think of all of those things. A common question is how common is intersex? And it really depends on what kind of intersex person you're talking about. For chromosomal variations, there are estimates as high as 1 in 660 people have these variations. For people with ambiguous genitalia, estimates range from 1 in 2,000 to 1 in 4,500. So let's talk about some of the ways that people are intersex, beginning with chromosomes. The dominant narrative is that sex can be clearly defined by sex chromosomes. So either you're an XX for female or an XY for male. Firstly, we don't actually know what most people's sex chromosomes are. We assume them based on genitals. If a baby is born with a penis, we assume XY, and if it's born with a vulva, we assume XX. We mostly assign sex based on genitals. Think about it. Do you know what your sex chromosomes are, or do you just assume them based on your genitals? Second, there are more options than XX or XY. In a condition called Turner syndrome, an individual is born with one X chromosome and either a damaged second sex chromosome or no second sex chromosome. This is often represented as XO or X0. People with Turner syndrome have a vulva, but do not have fully developed reproductive anatomy. Usually these individuals are assigned female at birth and then given hormonal treatments to mimic puberty when they're older. People can also have extra sex chromosomes and be XXX or XXY, and in some cases even XXXY. 
people with a Y chromosome and one or more extra Xs will develop a penis and testes, but they'll be on the small side. Their testes produce low levels of testosterone compared to XY males, and they may also develop breast tissue and fat deposits on hips. So even at the chromosomal level, there are more than two options for sex chromosomes. Hormones also play a role in sexing the body, and there's a lot of variability in hormonal effects. Most obvious effects are on the genitals, but there can be effects on other parts of the body and the brain. One condition is called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, or CAH. This is when a genetic variation interferes with steroid hormone production in the adrenal glands. Steroid hormones are things like cortisol, testosterone, estradiol, etc. There are different forms that CAH can take, but in terms of sex, it can result in an overproduction of androgens, aka masculinizing hormones. For XY individuals who are already exposed to a lot of androgens, this type of CAH is often not detectable at birth. In XX individuals, the excess androgens can masculinize the body and the brain. At birth, an XX infant with CAH can be born with what appears to be a small phallus or an enlarged clitoris. The labia may also be fused into a scrotum. XX people with CAH have obviously intersex external genitals at birth. As birth has been medicalized, in many places, physicians recommend surgery on the infant's genitals to, quote, normalize them. If the phallus is large enough, sometimes the recommendation will be to assign the infant a male gender, and if it's on the smaller side, the baby is assigned female. In many places, surgery is done to reduce the clitoris to a size deemed more appropriate for a female. Essentially, the infant's clitorises are chopped off so their genitals will look more ladylike. Intersex people have been advocating for decades to stop unnecessary infant genital surgeries. They have been successful stopping it in some places, but it still happens all over the world. Another hormonal variation is hypospadias, which is caused by variations in exposure to hormones in utero. Excessive progesterone has been linked with hypospadias, but there are other potential causes. This condition results in a urethra, which is the part where pee comes out, that does not exit at the top of the penis. It can exit anywhere along the shaft. It also results in an opening in the penis, and in some cases, the genitals will look like a vulva. This is another condition where babies often have surgery early on to make their genitals look the way male genitals would typically look. We generally think of genitals as coming in two categories, say clitoris and vagina, and penis and scrotum. But in actuality, there's a spectrum of genitals. The variability in genitals from penis and scrotum to vulva and clitoris is common enough that the medical world has created a scale to measure them on. This is called the Prater scale. You can Google it to see the spectrum of genitals. Another hormone-related condition is a genetic variation that occurs in XY individuals called 5-alpha reductase syndrome. 5-alpha reductase is an enzyme that converts testosterone in the body to dihydrotestosterone, or DHT. DHT contributes to the growth of the penis and scrotum in utero. If there's no DHT, an infant is usually born with what appears to be a vulva, although sometimes the genitals are more ambiguous. Usually that child is assigned female at birth and is raised female. 
At puberty, when testosterone kicks in, it triggers the growth of the penis and the testes descend. So now this individual who was assigned female at birth has a visible, albeit small, penis and testes. After puberty, some people with this condition will change their gender identity, and some do not. 5-alpha reductase deficiency is heritable, so it runs in families. This means there's a possibility that a family will be more aware of it or look into testing early on. But for some families, it will be a complete surprise. The book Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides is about a character with 5-alpha reductase syndrome. Androgen insensitivity syndrome, or AIS, is a condition where XY individuals are missing the genes to make androgen receptors. Externally, people with AIS have what appears to be a vulva and are assigned female at birth. In some cases, their condition isn't discovered until they don't start menstruating or going through puberty. Once it's discovered that they have internal testes instead of ovaries, those testes are usually removed and the person is put on estrogen to induce breast development and fat development. AIS can be complete, in which case the person has no androgen receptors at all, which is what I just described, or it can be partial, which means the person has some functional androgen receptors. Even in that case, the person is still usually assigned female at birth, even though they are an XY individual. So now that I've given some examples of intersex people, I want to talk about the harm caused by the assumption of the sex binary. As I mentioned, the medicalization of birth led to doctors wanting to, quote, fix infants whose genitals were ambiguous. So this led to surgeries on sensitive genital tissues, obviously without the consent of the infant whose body is being operated on. Because the existence of intersex people is so hidden, when parents are told that their child needs surgery on their genitals to make them, quote, normal, they're likely to agree. It's often described to parents as a medical condition that needs to be fixed. Activists and researchers have gathered many stories from intersex adults who were born with ambiguous genitals, who deeply resent having their body parts removed or altered as infants and children. Another huge issue in this area is that physicians often tell parents to keep the surgeries or intersex status a secret from their child. If surgeries happened when the child was too young to remember, they were to never be told. If the child is old enough to know what's happening, parents are often told to lie to them. This is the case for people with AIS, who are more likely to need their testes removed when they're older. I don't know if it's still the case, but historically, they were told they had, quote, twisted ovaries that needed to be removed. And that conveniently would also explain why they couldn't get pregnant later in life. Once a friend of mine told me she had an issue with twisted ovaries, I immediately assumed that her doctors were lying to her and she secretly had testes. So I asked her if she'd ever had a period, which she did, <laughs> uh, and it was actually really a case of twisted ovaries. I had just read so much about the secrecy around intersex people that it was my default go-to. I will say that I truly believe that many of the doctors who do and did these surgeries and who tell parents to keep secrets from their child and the rest of their friends and family think that they're doing what's best for the child. I think many believe they're saving the child from shame and embarrassment of not being, quote, normal. They think that they are protecting them. Of course, that's not at all what happens. 
We're so obsessed with the idea of binary sex that we're forcing people into those boxes and then hiding their true identity from them. Then, when another intersex child is born, the parents think this is the only child this has ever happened to, and they agree to these surgeries, and they agree to keep secrets, and so on and so forth. Being lied to your whole life and having non-consensual surgeries is not what anyone wants. People have a right to know what's happening with them and their bodies, children included. A lot of activism to bring awareness to the existence and treatment of intersex people was done by the Intersex Society of North America. Their website still exists for a historical record, but hasn't been updated in many years. If you want to learn more about intersex, I recommend the Interact Advocates website at interactadvocates.org, which is focused on advocating for intersex youth. There's also the Intersex Justice Project, which focuses on ending unnecessary surgery on intersex children and teens. So I hope it's clear from the examples I've given today that biological sex isn't binary. In this episode, I've only outlined a few ways in which a person can be intersex. There are other possibilities, including having ovotestes, which is a gonad that's a hybrid of ovaries and testes. There are other genetic variations as well and other mosaic types of intersex existence. There's a great graphic from an article in Scientific American that shows many intersex possibilities. I'll include that in the show notes. Intersex individuals exist in other species as well. It isn't just humans. Biology is cool and complex, and variability is part of nature. That includes biological sex. Culturally, we have come so far in the past two decades in thinking beyond the binary for gender identity. But with few exceptions, it's still extremely rare to hear about intersex people. And I think that needs to change. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode are by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at paleblue.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at doweknowthings, and you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things.